hands to do all that he has commanded us to do. For the glory of his name. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Please be seated. Can you imagine what it must have been like to gather in that synagogue in Nazareth so many years ago? It's always helpful for me to try to put myself back into the scene as the gospel writers describe it. And this is quite a scene. You can imagine all the anticipation Uh, This indeed, what we've just heard read, that David read to us today, was the very first uh, episode uh, that Luke tells us, the first story about Jesus and his entry into the ministry of his adult life. He tells stories of his childhood, but this is the beginning of his ministry. Uh, Now, it's the first story he tells, but it's not the beginning of the ministry itself. Uh, He does say that a report about him went out through all the surrounding countryside. When you read through the Gospel of Mark, it's almost a full year of ministry that we have of that report before it comes to this story in Mark's Gospel. But this is where Luke wants us to begin. So there's this report that has gone out throughout the, uh, the entire surrounding countryside. And it's all about this kid that grew up in our church. All right? Just think about that. They're hearing about miracles. They're hearing about audacious claims. They're hearing that he's teaching like nobody else in Israel had ever taught. And now they hear that this kid is coming home. I think I'd be there that morning, right? Would you? I think we would. I think everybody else would. Uh, Luke goes on and says, And he came, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. The synagogue was indeed the local church, as you were, uh, gathering place. Uh, It had a leader in it, uh, but that leader would normally ask somebody else to preach. Um, I could have just tagged anybody here and said, it's your turn. That's what happens back then. We don't do it quite the same. Uh, You might be relieved. Anyways, we are not told if Jesus was asked or if everybody assumed that he would just do it. All he says is he stood up to read. Now, Jewish synagogues had a liturgy just like we have. We've inherited the frame of their liturgy. That's why we do what we do. 
And their frame was to have a set reading, as our lectionary does, from the Torah, from the first five books, and then allow the, the preacher to choose a complementary reading from the prophets. And so Jesus stands up. He asks for the scroll of Isaiah. And then he unrolls the scroll as it was given to him. And he found the place where this was written. So think about it. He wanted this text to be read in this context. His hometown and the people who saw him grow up. And this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's how Isaiah 61 begins. Again, as we've been looking at Isaiah 40 to 66, this is the great fifth gospel of the church. And the church goes back to these texts over and over again because Jesus goes back to these texts over and over again. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The one who was to come would be the one who bears the spirit so he might give the spirit to his people. This is the one, he says, this servant of mine through whom God will fulfill his purposes for his people and for his creation. This servant, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, he has made me the Christ, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the gospel to the poor. That's the word in the Greek. Best news. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight, <clears throat> excuse me, to the blind, <clears throat> to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke says, he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down because teachers always sat back then. And he says, and all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he preached a one sentence sermon. One sentence. And this is what he said. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. Right. That's the story. If you were there, how would you have responded? If you had seen this kid grow up among you and then see him leave town and then come back to town and read that text and preach that sermon. 
how would you have responded? Now, we are not told how they responded. That's left for next week. Uh, and even though I'm eager to get to next week, the lectionary says, stop here. Um, it doesn't happen that often, but sometimes we get a text and a story that is so powerful that the church says, you need to slow down and read it uh, very slowly and carefully. And when you get this kind of two-sided message, um, the beginning of something and then response to something, it says, look, there are two sides that you really need to grapple with. And the first is simply this, and here's what this text is saying to us. There is nothing more important than to recognize that he is this one and to listen to him as he speaks to us. That's the message for today. The message for next week is, there is nothing more challenging than that to do. And it is very challenging to continue to recognize him and continue to listen to him because sometimes he says things we don't want to hear. But I'm going to leave that for next week. David is preaching on that next week, and I want to crimp his style. I want to come back to looking at this week. And the question I found myself asking, if this is the task, that we are nothing more important than to recognize him and to listen to him, how do we shape our life so that we are more prone to do that? How do we craft the way we live so that that we have a greater shot at having that happen in our life? Then it dawned on me that as I read that second half, and I did, I have to go on and and confess to you, I did read next week's lesson. There is something that happens. We just got to understand this. There is a process of response to any event. It's just how we are as human beings. And the process has three three parts to it. There's always this initial response. Boom. You hear something, you respond. You cannot help it. It's mostly an emotional response. And then that emotional response, that initial response, quickly turns into what I call a reflective response. You begin to think about what you just heard and what it made you feel, and you think about it from your own lived experience. All of us do. We think in different ways, we reflect in different ways because we come from different places. And then after a time, after we begin to think through and reflect on these things, we come to a considered judgment about them. Whether we say yes to it, no to it, or not yet to it. That's just human life, folks. You are confronted with something that surprises you or shocks you. You have that emotional response. You can't help the way you feel. It just happens. What you can begin to help is how you think about how you feel. It's the reflective phase that is the key phase. And if we're going to have to look at that reflective phase, if we are going to arrive at the right considered judgments. 
You tracking? Initial response, no control. Reflection on that response, we have some control. Not a lot, but some. And the more we begin to get a handle on how we should reflect on these things, the more likely we will arrive at the right considered judgments on these things. So how do we do that? And I'm assuming that each and every time that we pick up this book, open it, and begin to read, we are hearing him speak to us through the words that he has spoken. That's what the scriptures do. That's what Jesus did. He read from the text and then spoke to the text about himself to his people. He does that every time we open this book. This is how God speaks to us. He addresses us through these words. And it's vital for us to hear his voice as he does so. But how do you begin to shape your life so that you are prone to listen? That's the question I'm asking. And I want to make two, well, they're not simple points, but two points that I hope might be of help to you. They have been and are helpful to me. The first comes from the context of our text. The second comes from our companion text from Nehemiah. Here's what I would say. Every time you open up this book, every time you prepare yourself to listen for his voice, understand this bigger context. And the bigger context is his voice is not the only voice vying for your attention. His voice is not the only voice vying for your attention. That's what the bigger context of our text is all about. You go back into Luke's gospel. Uh, in the third chapter, he describes again the baptism of Jesus by John, uh, where, again, the heavens are open, the spirit descends, and he hears the Father's voice saying, you are my son, my beloved, with you I am well pleased. He hears this voice. And then we read the story that the spirit drives him out into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil, tempted by the enemy, tempted by the other voice in the story, <laughs> tempted to have a different idea as to who he is, tempted to have a different way of being who he's called to be. And then having left that, having overcome those temptations, having said no to that tempter, that other voice, he then bursts upon the scene in Nazareth, reading the text and saying, I am the one who has come to overcome that voice. And I have come overcome that voice so that you might hear mine. That's what the text of the temptation with this as the second or the next immediate story tells us. God has overcome in Jesus the, the voice of the tempter so that now he can speak to his people. That's what he's saying. He says, I am the one 
who has come. My voice has come to break the power of his voice over you. I have come to speak good news to the poor. I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who have been enslaved by this voice. I have come, he says, to open the eyes of the blind because this one has blinded you to see who this one is that is coming. I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So the good news of the gospel is that we who have been oppressed and enslaved by this other voice, blinded to the glory of God, uh, enslaved to think that the one who loves us and speaks to us speaks death to us, not life. He says, I have overcome this one so that I might speak truth into your life. And when his voice breaks through into our lives, that power of the other voice is broken. That's the good news of the gospel. And when you hear the gospel, you are knowing that you have been freed to listen. That's the good news. That if you have indeed heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that his voice has broken the power of the enemy over your life. The bad news is, it hasn't yet taken it away. That other voice remains powerful in our lives. That other voice has shaped our lives forever until his voice breaks in. And we come to the text with both of those voices vying for our attention. Do you get that? Our task when we open this word is to understand that context, that we are wanting to discern his voice, but we're also wanting to discern the other voice and how it is influencing us hearing his voice. Uh, we read today about the postmodernist idea of having this hermeneutic of suspicion that we don't trust any voice, right, except our own. We need, as Christians, to have a hermeneutic a suspicion of ourselves as we come to this text. We need to come ready to question our questions, ready to doubt our doubts because they will be raised for us in the reading of this text. And we need to be able to cry out to the one to say, teach me where these are coming from and what I am to do with them. Because there is only life. Life comes only from listening to his voice. That's the first thing I would like to suggest to you. That's the bigger context as we come to any time we open up this text. Understand that's the context. There is a struggle for your soul every time you open up the scripture. His voice sets us free. The other voice drags us into death. And we have to choose who to listen to. That's the first thing. 
There is a second thing that came to mind as I was reading this, and I was vying between these two texts, so I decided to preach two sermons. Anyways, here is the second text coming from Nehemiah. Uh, There is a similarity, so I think you can see this. I'm not going to preach much on Nehemiah. But let me, again, quickly set the scene. Uh, It's the same kind of scene. This is the new beginnings for the Israelites as they return from exile. Um, This is the middle of a three-pronged return. You have Nehemiah and Ezra. They have rebuilt the walls. They are beginning to rebuild the temple, and they bring everybody into the city gate by the water gate in order to hear the word read to the people. Exactly what Jesus is doing in the synagogue, they are doing in the courtyard. But this is a new beginning. This is how God is reconstituting this particular people following their faithlessness. And we have the same kind of thing. Uh, Ezra gathers. He's sitting up on this tall platform, this pulpit, and he begins to read the Torah, the first five books of the Law of Moses. And he begins in the early morning, and he reads through to the midday. You have the scene of the Levites scattered throughout the people, and their job is to interpret what the people are hearing. Right? It's a great little scene. I love that kind of scene. But anyways, you have... Nehemiah describes the response of the people. And again, it is that three-folded kind of response. They begin with utter expectation. Utter expectation. Uh, they, uh, when Ezra stood, the, uh, we read, the people stood with him and answered as he prayed, a man and a man lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They were ready to hear eager to hear the word spoken to them, their God through their leadership speaking to them. They were eager for it. And then we come to the reflection piece, and it's sort of hidden in the text, but it's there. Uh, We read, for example, that they had to be ordered not to weep, ordered not to grieve, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. And indeed, they had to be ordered not to mourn or weep. Now, think about that. They are eager to hear. They're ready to hear. They begin to hear, and they're thinking about what they're hearing. They start to weep. The intent of the hearing was to experience joy. Where did the weeping come from? We're not told. But could it be that it was the other voice speaking condemnation into their souls? This is how it happens. When the word is spoken, we respond. And when we begin to reflect on the response, we are being pulled in two different directions. Now, the good news is, They were there, and they weren't alone that day. The leadership ordered them to change the path of their reflection. 
Do not weep. Do not mourn, for this day is holy to the Lord. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing to eat, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They were given a redirecting word on their reflection on the word. Do you see that? And it led to them finally experiencing that joy in festival. They were helped, though, by the God-given leadership given to them. Now, let me say this um, very clearly, as clearly as I can. We live in a hyper-individualistic age. I take that as a given. Every single one of us truly believes that we are autonomous in all that we do. And if we don't, we're just lying to ourselves. Hear this. You are responsible for how you respond to the word of God. You are. We each are in our own time. It is true. I am responsible for my response to the word. You are responsible for your response to the word. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We have that dignity, that responsibility. We are indeed responsible for our response to that word. But the good news is we are not alone in that responsibility. God gives to his bride leadership. He gives to his bride a gift of teachers. He gives to his bride a way of listening and reflecting on what they are hearing. That's what Nehemiah teaches us, I think. And it's a glorious thing. We each are responsible for how we respond to the word, but we are not alone in that responsibility. Thank God for that. We have a history of reading this text, a tradition of reading, and a tradition of getting it wrong. We had church history today in our new members class. We have gotten it wrong a lot. But we also have in our own day a cadre, a community of formed people who have been shaped by this word, who have learned to discern the voice of the Lord speaking through this word. And those are gifts of God to the people of God in every age of God. So let me say this again. If you are struggling with understanding the word, and especially if you are struggling with responding to the word by resisting the word in a particular way, and we all do, we all do, then seek out a wise and loving elder brother and sister. 
seek them out and ask them to help you read in a way that leads to life and not to death. You are indeed responsible for how you respond to the word. But you are not alone in that responsibility. I am responsible for how I respond, but I am not alone in that responsibility. By the grace of God, he has given gifts to the church of God to help us discern the voice of God speaking through the word of God. We need to make use of those gifts, of those leaders, so that you and I can discern not only the enemy's voice and know how to say no to it, but to discern the voice of the Lord that brings Today, says Jesus, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I now can speak into your life. Will you listen? Let us pray.